Hello, Ars Technica listeners. This is the latest serialization of an episode of the After On podcast here at Ars. We're splitting this one into three segments starting today, and I'll be talking to Sarah Parkak, who is a world-class astroarchaeologist. And isn't that the best title ever? Sarah's other titles include or have included Professor of Archaeology, Ted Fellow, National Geographic Explorer, and National Geographic Fellow. In what may be disappointing news for some folks, it was for me. I'll note that space archaeologists don't dig up the sites of ancient civilizations on Mars, although Elon Musk may fix that someday. Rather, they use satellite imagery to discover, monitor, and learn more about ancient sites on Earth. And though space archaeology first emerged over 20 years before Sarah finished graduate school, she's very much a pioneer of this field, which has made huge strides over the past decade, as ever-higher-resolution images have become available at ever-cheaper prices. Sarah's work has pinpointed thousands of likely ancient sites which were previously unknown in Egypt alone, and she may have taken us a giant step closer to locating one of the ancient world's most significant lost cities, a longtime capital of Egypt. She later led an amazingly comprehensive effort to detect and document archaeological looting in the years leading up to and following the Arab Spring. In 2016, Sarah won the million-dollar TED Prize to further her work, She used both the money and the platform that Ted gave her to launch a citizen scientist platform, which has enlisted over 50,000 people in a project identifying previously unknown sites throughout Peru. That platform and the organization Sarah founded to run it have a very bright future, although that's all that can be said for now, Rob says mysteriously. Just two days before posting this episode, I was down in Alabama, where Sarah teaches, learning far more than I'd previously known about her work. Which is saying something, because as you'll hear in the interview, we first met over five years ago, when we were both about to undergo the terrifying process of speaking on the main stage at the TED conference. Though she was still in her earliest 30s at that point, her credentials were already astonishing, and I've watched her career with ever-growing astonishment ever since. And with that, it is a great delight to bring you a fascinating conversation with Sarah Parkak. Sarah, it is great to be here in your adoptive uh, town and state of Birmingham, Alabama. This is my 49th state that I have visited in my lifetime. It's great to have you here, and I'm I'm glad that uh, we are proving our reputation with hospitality. Breakfast this morning, I think, was barely barely acceptable. Possibly the best French toast I ever had. Ironically, not at the French Toast House, but at the Pancake House, which is across the street from the Waffle House. Well, of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. I don't know if there really are French Toast Houses anywhere, but that was mind-blowing stuff. And I'm going to throw a crazy suggestion at you. So back to English. For those of you who are wondering what that was, it's a little repartee in Egyptian Arabic because uh, both Sarah and I happen to speak that better than most non-Egyptian, non-Muslim, non-Arab Americans uh, by dint of having spent a great deal of time in Cairo. Now, we may end up talking about what first brought me to Cairo, but Sarah, why don't you start out by telling us why you spend so much time there? 
Because I have probably an unhealthy obsession with ancient Egypt that I've had ever since I was a small child. I am an Egyptologist. And you are also a space archaeologist. That's right. I wear multiple hats, all of them slightly different shades of fedora brown. Got it, got it. Now, to um, start briefly with a definition of space archaeology. By the way, I I don't know why, but I'm always wanting to say astroarchaeologist because (laughs) somehow that just sounds more crazy. And I will add, astroarchaeologist does not get a red squiggle in Gmail. It does in Microsoft Word. But I started writing that for some reason. And then you corrected me. It's, it is space archaeologist, right? That is correct. So I guess the more formal academic term would be a satellite archaeologist mm. or even a landscape archaeologist, someone that uses satellite imagery to map um, large areas that you go and explore. Uh, but I, I blame NASA for inventing this term. Um, NASA actually has a space archaeology program that funds people like me. So essentially, the definition is an archaeologist or scientist Mm -hmm. who uses different types of satellite imagery, both large-scale resolution and high-resolution imagery that you might see on something like Google Earth. And in processing the data, um, you may find sites, features, uh, ancient uh, environmental features like rivers or, or dried up lakes. And then you go out and you survey or excavate said features. And these are things that typically you wouldn't be able to see unless you used satellite or other imagery taken from on high. Got it. Got it. And the field got started in 1984, right? There was a very specific moment when there was a meeting of sorts, a powwow where where this all came together. Yeah, so I I credit my good friend, um, Professor Tom Seaver, who for years was NASA's official archaeologist, and now he's a professor at the University of Alabama at Huntsville. Um, And at the time, Tom was was an archaeologist working for NASA, and he had this conference in 1984 where he brought together a diverse set of archaeologists and said, hey, you know, we've got all these cool technology applications. You all should consider using satellite imagery. You know, I think it could really help you find sites and map sites. And at the time, virtually no archaeologists were really using it. And so um, after his conference, a lot of archaeologists started applying satellite imagery, and a lot of the first papers started coming out a couple of years later. Uh, and thus, the field was born. And this was 1984. Yes. So he had was done with his legendary run pitching for the Mets. I think it was 311 wins, 61 shutouts, uh, over 3,500 strikeouts, Mr. Tom Seaver, right? Y- yes, and hundreds of ancient sites. Found. Different Tom Seaver than the pitcher for the Mets. I I just had to make that little joke. I I appreciate that. I'm sure he does too. I'm sure he does too. Now, actually, to get to your own path here, uh, here we're in University of Alabama in Birmingham. You mentioned he's in Huntsville. So Alabama is a veritable hotbed for for space archaeology, it seems. Who knew? Um, So when I came here uh, in 2006 to start my job, at UAB, I kind of put two and two together um, and reached out to Tom, and he's about a sort of hour and 20-minute drive uh, north of us. Yep. So I got to go, and I've, I've, from time to time, I'll go and visit him. He'll usually have visiting colleagues. When I first started at UAB, we had a, a cooperative agreement with NASA. They were very generous and provided some funding for my research and to help out with our students. So yeah, totally random that, that we both wild. ended up in Alabama. To get to your own path to Alabama, I'd like to go all the way back. You are from Bangor, Maine. Yes. Very different climate, very different state. 
very, very different. And your fascination with Egypt and Egyptology uh, goes back to a tooth fairy's gift yes. as far as that? Yeah. Yes. So um, most Egyptologists will tell you that they, they cannot tell you why they started being interested in ancient Egypt. It usually starts at ages three, four, or five. I want to note really? that... Really? Yeah. A across the field? That's a common... Across the field. Everyone just gets obsessed with Egypt at a really, really young age. That's and cool. and when I uh, was growing up, you know, this was Maine in the early to mid-1980s. This was pre-cable, pre-internet. Um, I, you know, did I, did I see a National Geographic story and get interested? I don't know. I can't remember the moment when I became interested. My mom tells me that out of the blue, I just started asking her about mummies and pyramids and she went, what? This is, there's no reason for it. Yeah. Um, so the, uh, the tooth fairy brought this amazing, uh, book on ancient Egypt when I lost my, one of my first teeth. And it's a great, it's a great book. I just found it not, not all that long ago again. It was a great history book. You know, a lot of time, a lot of times, kids' books, young teen books, um, maybe they're they don't quite have the the level of information that you might want. But uh, but it was a great it was a great little book, and that got me started. And I just grew up um, loving Egypt and reading everything I could about it. You know, in my neighborhood, the Tooth Fairy paid cash um, for teeth. I wish we had gotten fascinating books because that is such a cool story. It helps being the daughter of a nerd. Yeah, yeah. And how many, roughly, let's just say in the United States, how many full-time professional working Egyptologists would you ballpark there are? It's hard to say. You know, for example, our big annual conference, the American Research Center in Egypt, um, usually there are a couple hundred people that go and give papers, you know, between the, the um, Egyptologists and grad students. Yeah, a couple, a couple hundred, I would say, within the U.S. Overwhelmingly involved, I'm sure, in academic settings with affiliated with universities and so forth, but probably a few with foundations and museums. Yeah, and... definitely. It's sort of split, sort of not quite evenly split, maybe tilting 60% towards academics, but uh, a lot of people work in museums. Yeah, some people work in foundations. Some yeah. people will say be classicists, but also work in Roman Egypt as well. Got it. Now, so you were, you, you went through school, you had this early fascination, then you got to Yale as a freshman. You'd thought that, you know, the tooth fairy phase and the childhood fascination was fabulous, but you were not intending to get into the field upon arriving at college, correct? Absolutely, absolutely not. Yeah, I I got obsessed with politics in high school. Um, you know, I loved Egypt, but... You know, I, I started volunteering for political campaigns, uh, started volunteering at my local congressman's office in the fall of 1996, uh, that then President Bill Clinton was running for his second term, so volunteered for him, and then the next summer ended up working uh, for my congressman in D.C., so that was going to be my path. I was going mm -hmm. to go to Yale, study politics or history, go to law school, go back to Maine and run for office. That was the plan. Really? That's but, a that's a pretty evolved plan for that age. I'm impressed. Uh, but they got derailed almost immediately, right? Total derailment. So when I got to Yale, Yale's divvied up into 12 residential colleges. And in each residential college, there are residential fellows who can be professors or researchers from kind of anywhere at Yale. And one of the research fellows, one of the residential fellows in my college, Timothy Dwight, was a gentleman named William Kelly Simpson, who was an eminent Egyptologist. And Professor Simpson would invite all the first-year students in Timothy Dwight College to his estate in Katona, New York. Kelly was married to one of the Rockefellers, so uh, he himself came from old New York money. So very kindly invite all the first-year students you know, for a day of being at the pool and running around his estate. This was not a professor's salary type of setup. There, there's some 
older money at work at this. I think 100 professors' salaries would not have purchased this estate over a lifetime. Um, so I sort of realized on the bus going there, like, wait a minute, William Kelly Simpson, not the William Kelly Simpson, and of course it was. Oh, so you knew his name from your early obsession. You, yeah, he's just, he's he's a legend in the field, total legend. And, and he's he is your resident fellow. Right, right, totally random, sheer dumb luck. So I ended up speaking to Professor Simpson. There were some uh, there were some Egyptologists at this party from the Met who uh, it's kind of ironic. They at the time they were just wrapping up their work at a site called Lisht, which you will hear about later on. Yes. And you know, they were very kind and very helpful and just very encouraging to me because at the time I just before classes started, I was picking what classes to take. Oh, this is orientation yeah, like, period. Yeah, yeah, a couple, a couple days before school starts. You really got hijacked at, upon arrival. It's, it's that's cool. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty yeah. Much. So yeah, I started working for Professor Simpson, and that was it. I started taking Egyptology courses, and it was sort of a, a one eighty, but kind of not really. A lot of what I've ended up doing, especially post Arab Spring, has been very political. So my my political interests and my ancient history interests seem to have aligned finally. Well, well, there's actually kind of an interesting parallelism between you and I. When I went to college, uh, I similarly, I thought I was going to study political science, but I'd spent a summer as an exchange student in Cairo quite randomly. Um, it was an exchange program that had the philosophy that, you know, we don't want to be a glorified travel agency for high school kids. So you can join this group. It's called the American Field Service. And you can express a preference of where you want to go. But you're going to go where we tell you ultimately because we want kids who want to go you know, to see the world as opposed to want to go to Paris. So I, I was really keen to go to New New Zealand and you could express a preference. They try to honor it. They said, great, Auckland's a wonderful city. So is Christchurch. You're going to Cairo. So <laughs> I spent the summer after my junior year of high school in Cairo and I got to college and similar thing, I didn't run into somebody in my orientation week that sort of abducted my academic interests, but I did take a class in modern Middle Eastern history and started studying Arabic and, and very, very, very modern Egyptian history compared to the history that you study, but ended up going back and living in the region and so forth. So that's very interesting. Now, you were on, you went on your first dig this summer after your freshman or your sophomore year? It was after my sophomore year. And you made a particularly important discovery on that dig, am I right? So, yes. Yeah, so, um, actually, if you don't mind me sharing a very funny story. So Please. before before I went on that dig, uh, sort of I put my CV together and wrote at this time, this was, we were using email, but that was not the way to get in touch with professors. You know, I put together a dossier and sent this package off to dozens of Egyptologists, basically begging them to allow me to join their digs. And by the way, being a professor now, I get these emails and CVs. So I, I respect kind of how ballsy I was at a young age. Uh, and so a lot of a lot of them wrote back, oh, thank you for reaching out. You know, we appreciate your interest, but you have a lot of learning to do, kid. You know, mm, you call, yeah. contact us in a couple of years. My favorite, though, was writing to a professor at the University of Chicago. Now, I didn't know these professors. I knew they were eminent Egyptologists, but I didn't know anything about them. So I wrote to a professor at the University of Chicago, and I got my dossier returned with the address crossed out and the words written on it, deceased 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, clearly I didn't know what I was doing, but I was very lucky to get on this one excavation in the Northeast Egyptian Delta, a site called Mendes, uh, mm -hmm. run by uh, Professor Don Redford at Pennsylvania State University. I'm still in touch with Don. He's a, he's a wonderful Egyptologist. And so on that dig, I was responsible for excavating a, a mastaba, or it's a step or bench tomb from about uh, 4,300 years ago. And while excavating, 
renovating, I was very lucky to find an intact pot. Mm. And flipping kind of as I'm digging and digging in the pot, it was intact, it was broken, but it was all it was all there, more or less. And there's a thumbprint on it. Um, so it was really the moment where I connected with, with this idea of the when we're excavating, um, they're, they're physical people who lived in the past. And I didn't quite get that until that moment. It was very powerful for me to learn that on my first dig. And I, I sort of took that as a lesson every time you know I'm in the field and every time I was in the field moving ahead, I always tried to imagine the people who created the tombs or the pyramids or the settlements in which I was working. Yeah, and I, I've had, you know, a very novice, similar experience, I guess, a couple of times when I first went to the Valley of the Kings and, and got deep into the pyramids, or not pyramids, into the tombs. It, it's amazing the the richness of the colors as they've been preserved in these tombs that have seen very, very little light over thousands of years, but also to be able to see actual individual brush strokes and to feel, you know, on certain things like, wow, somebody moved their hand in a very tiny arc. And you can see the relic of that. It is incredibly powerful. There was also another profound result of that dig, if I'm not mistaken, right? Another, I mean, we could we could call it maybe another discovery. Yes, if not my greatest discovery. The greatest discovery. Yeah, I happened to meet my future husband on my first dig. Which is so cool. Yeah, at the time, yeah, I just finished off my, my second year of university. I was not exactly, uh, you know... I don't know, I hadn't had a lot of boyfriends at the time. I just wanted a date. That was my MO. Not on the dig, per se, but just in general. A date occasionally would have been nice. And I go on this dig, and I see this slightly awkward, bumbling British chap. And, you know, then he starts asking me to, um, you know, come to his unit, and excavation unit, and he starts teaching me. Now, at the time, I will say nothing untoward. Um, you know, I know now we're dealing with all sorts of fallout from a lot of harassment, like totally innocent friendship mm -hmm. um, at the start. But I can kind of look back on it now and see that we were both just completely obsessed with each other. So one thing led to another. You were friends for a year before we got together. But yeah, that was that was it. That was my future husband. That is a very cool origin story. Back to origin stories. So go briefly back to Mr. Seaver and this 1984 conference and what, what ensued after that. Because this is, um, we're, we're going to bring together the threads. You're now involved in Egyptology and the satellite work is about to loom into your life. So that was a long time before you were working on this dig, or I guess it was about a decade before you were working on this dig. Two decades. Two decades before this dig happened, the, the, your first dig. Yes. Was there a, a sustained period of interest? in satellite or space archaeology after that? Or was there kind of like a flurry of activity and, and papers and followed by a petering out? Or did the field just sort of blow up from that point going forward? So following Tom's conference and the few papers that came out, it sort of sort of piddled along. Like there was never a, a big explosion in the field and in interest um, until people of my generation went to graduate school. So we're, this is about 2000, 2001. Yep. And there's a cohort of us that finished our PhDs between kind of 2003 and 2006, 2007. And we were all very lucky to get academic appointments, um, not just in North America, but in Europe as well. And I would say around that time, so the early 2000s, you went from you know virtually no remote sensing papers appearing in journals and uh, uh, papers at conferences being given to all of a sudden lots and lots of papers started to be published. There were whole, you know, it wasn't just a paper, it was a 
panel, and then all, then it was a conference, and then there were the NASA Space Archaeology Grant. So you saw this massive, massive growth in the in the mid aughts. I guess is the technical term. And was it because there was just a higher resolution of imagery that was suddenly available? Was it the fact? I guess we had Google Earth by then, correct? We, we did. So a lot of things happened all at once. So a lot of the professors that attended Tom's conference and had written papers started taking on students. Yep. Because of that interest, other professors said, well, it's a satellite stuff that people are doing. Um, NASA satellite imagery started becoming more widely available and for free. And in the late 1990s, early 2000s, very high-resolution satellite imagery started to be more readily available. Now, at the time, it was very expensive to get a single satellite image. could cost five dollars or $10,000, but costs started coming down. So between availability of imagery, more papers, more students finishing, um, yeah, it just it, the whole field started to grow. So let's talk about just a, a, a typical project that you might be finding yourself doing with satellite imagery. Let's say you're, you're looking for sites where sites have not yet been discovered. What kinds of images you're looking at? I know you look at near infrared a lot. What are some of the images that you would be looking at? And what are some of the signals that you're looking for in that imagery? So everything depends on where in the world we're looking. Because mm. every country will have diverse cultures, uh, diverse things, diverse features that are made from stone or mud brick or turf. Uh, so let's just say we're working on a on a potential Viking site in Scotland. Okay. Potential, like you think there might be a site here and we're not sure. Yep. So the first thing we would do, so t typically, like I'm being an Egyptologist, I really wouldn't choose to work on a Viking site. That's not my bread and butter. Mm -hmm. But I collaborate with scholars all over the world. I'm not a specialist in whether it's the Vikings or the Incas or wherever. So I would approach a scholar or a scholar might approach me and say, hey, let's collaborate on this project. You know, I've been working in this landscape in Scotland for 25 years. And I'm pretty sure that there are uh, Viking outbuildings that are associated with these farmsteads. But it's just not time and cost efficient for me to use the technologies that I have in the field to go map them and find them. I think using satellite imagery, we couldn't. Well, that's really interesting. Let's try something. Mm. So in archaeology, we go from the known to the unknown. Mm. So what I would do is work with that archaeologist and get you know, the top peer-reviewed articles that show all the different kinds of features that we might come across in that landscape. So different kinds of outbuildings, you know, milk sheds, uh, iron processing sites, uh, smaller farmsteads. In other words, my team and I have a, a good sense of the types of things that we might find. Okay, that's step one. Step two, what are those things made from? Well, in Scotland, it's either going to be turf or probably stone. Okay, so it's turf or stone, and here's how these things change over time, and here's their size and shape and typical orientation, and then we import into our database all the known things in that landscape. So they're going to be farmsteads and other features that are already there. Known things. So yeah, this known is things. like this is a farmstead that we know is a Viking right. site back in wherever. And right. So that's what it looks like right now from space. Right. So we know what these things look like from space now. Right. right. And, yeah. and and we have we we essentially know they're known knowns and unknown knowns and yeah. whatever that quote is. Um so so we have our known knowns, right? Mm -hmm. And so we study them and we look and see what they're like from space. And then the specialist will say, okay, typically outbuildings are located within 100 meters of a farmstead. Okay, so we have our geographic location, right? So now we know the things that we're looking for. We know their size. We know their shape. We know their likely orientation. We know their building material. What are the things in which they might be located? Well, in Scotland, um, it's dense turf. 
So we're looking for a stone thing or a turf thing in turf. You see, we're narrowing down and narrowing. It's, it's never like we're going to go look here and let's find a thing. It's a very yeah. detailed um, process of scientific inquiry. Okay, we're looking for a stone thing in turf. Ergo, that turf responds really well in this particular part of the light spectrum. Thus, we need these types of satellite images with these types of spectral ranges. So in near-infrared, middle-infrared, or the edge between red and infrared. And then we'll choose processing techniques accordingly. So... Um, we'll experiment because we don't always know what will work. Yeah. Features start popping out. And at that point, we share the data with the specialist who'll say, yes, it's a thing. Or, yeah, I, I know what you're looking for. Um, or, or, yeah, we dug that thing. We thought it was a, you know, a, a, a Viking structure, but it was medieval. Oh, okay, then we go back to the drawing board. Got it. Okay, so you know what spectrum to look, look in or what part of the spectrum to look in based on what kind of earth you need to, in some cases, penetrate, right, if it's buried. Um, and I know in Egypt, you work with a lot of near-infrared, correct? Yeah, near and middle-infrared work really, really well. What does that reveal to you? That, that reveals things that are below the sediment layer to you in Egypt? The type of satellite data that I use is called optical satellite data. So I'm never actually seeing through the ground. Radar data doesn't, not the type of data that I use. What I am seeing are subtle changes on the surface that are caused by things that are buried underneath. So whether it's vegetation or sand or mud brick or stone, we're using the satellite data in different parts of the spectrum to really make these differences pop. Mm. So there would be, let's say you're looking at a site and you suspect that there might be a retaining wall or something in a particular area, or you're looking at a broad area and you're trying to find features of a city that once was. Those walls, those outbuildings will, in a sense, be causing very subtle distortions on the physical surface of the Earth that would escape the naked eye because you're at ground level and you're not seeing large features, or would escape the naked eye because it's in part of the spectrum that we wouldn't see. But it's manifested actually with the way that that natural sunlight is reflected on the Earth, and you're looking in the right spectrums to reveal that. Right. And, and it also depends on the actual material. So in Egypt... You know, you get, for example, sites in the delta, you know, structures are made out of mud brick. Well, in some sites, you can see very clearly the outlines of ancient cities and structures. At other sites, you can't. Yeah. And it depends on the soil composition. So for sites in the delta that are really sandy versus entirely silty, satellite imagery works really, really well. For sites that are mostly silty, it can still work, but you have to get data from a different kind of time of year. Got it. So you have to really understand your landscapes. And you are going to the database that exists of a vast number of images. You said the digital globe is the main provider. You're not saying, okay, you know, tell the, tell the person with the controls on the satellite to take a picture of this thing in the near-infrared spectrum. There's just enough satellite coverage, imagery coverage at this point that you can and say, okay, I want, I, I want this turf in the near-infrared from a multiple, multiplicity of dates. And, and you are grabbing stuff that's there as opposed to ordering in the way that, let's say, an astrophysicist will point a telescope somewhere and say, all right, we're going to take an image of this particular exoplanet or whatever. You're using data that, that exists in the global database in a sense already. Sometimes. Sometimes. More often. I mean, it's much easier for me to go to the, the Digital Globe database and tell the, the person I work with for reselling, yeah, I want that image because I can get it within 24 hours. It's easy. Sometimes I actually need 
an image. Really? Yes. So you do custom work then? I do. I do custom work. Because, so for example, in places like Cairo or Luxor, right, these well-known places, um, most cities, most large urban areas, there are going to be dozens and dozens of satellite images just because people in general will be interested in those places. Yeah. But if you're dealing with, I don't know, uh, a place in central Iceland or Greenland or northern Russia, I mean, these are not sort of hotbeds of activity typically. Yeah. So there might only be one or two satellite images in the database and you've got an image but it might not be from the right time of year and if it's not from the right time of year you're in trouble so you do you can actually request custom work and that does happen from yes. time to time yes now how small of a thing can we see with the high resolution data that you're now working with so the highest resolution imagery um t- to which mere mortals such as myself um have access <laughs> as opposed to military I right, right yes right? it's, yeah. it's 0.3 meters or 11 inches So you can see, for example, the outline of your iPad from space. That's about the resolution we're talking. So you could see a tablet, a stone tablet from days gone by, but you could not read it. No, you couldn't. And and the thing is, if it were partly buried, you probably couldn't see it. But you could certainly see that there there was a a gray or brown thing lying on a sandy surface. And there are not a lot of complete tablets necessarily lying around on the surface, even in in remote places, I imagine. Don't you you mean eye tablets? Eye tablets. That's right. That's right. So now I want to get, now that we've had a pretty good grounding in uh, space archaeology. I want to get back to your professional path. So uh, you got out of Yale and you got a fellowship to go to Cambridge, correct? Yes. And that was a one-year hitch that turned into something quite a bit longer. Yes. Yeah, so so I was very lucky to get, get a fellowship to go study at Cambridge for a year where I did my master's degree. And then loved the program, loved my supervisor. Um, it was a great, great fit. So I decided to stay on for my PhD. Uh, I then was very lucky to get a National Science Foundation graduate research. And your, your advisor, sorry to go back, but your advisor is kind of globally renowned in the field of Egyptology, right? So his, his name is Barry Kemp, and he is probably the most well-known archaeologist who works in Egypt. Wow. And his site is generally on, it's Armana? Amarna. What is it about the Amarna site that drew him to it and is it special and exceptional? Because I imagine you did a little work there by dint of working with him. I did. So what's extraordinary about Amarna is that um, it was the capital of Egypt for about a 30-year period. Uh, and this this pharaoh um, called Akhenaten, so-called heretic king, um, people could have credit him with inventing monotheism. It's much more complicated than that. But he moved the capital of Egypt from Luxor to, um, or ancient Thebes, a couple hundred miles away to this new place. So it's this short-survived or short-lived city that provides almost a, a time capsule into a period of time in Egypt's New Kingdom. So it's, it's rare. There are no other cities like it in Egypt. Um, so you can study you know, how one city thrived, evolved, and ultimately fell. Um, so my supervisor has excavated the central city of Amarna for some time. Uh, and I was interested in working there because the West Bank across from Amarna had had some survey work done, but had never uh, been fully surveyed. And also, I was very interested to see how the Nile River had shifted and moved over time. I did a little digging. and I found some interviews on YouTube. I have to say that Barry Kemp 
um, is has bears a remarkable resemblance to Gandalf in <laughs> Lord of the Rings in like the coolest way because like what could be cooler when you get to the sort of wizened genius stage than than resembling Gandalf and it's more than just a passing re- resemblance. Yeah, no, Barry uh, loves the Lord of the Rings. Um, oh, he that's, does. Yes, that's an understatement. So at the, at the Dig House on Amarna, um, there's actually a, a, pr- a printout, a, a bit of a poster from the movie, um, and it's Marion Pippin. And it's the scene where they're asking uh, Aragon about stopping for breakfast because they're hungry again. Hobbits uh-huh. are always hungry. And on digs, we have second breakfast. And so Mary is saying to Pippin, uh, I don't think he knows about second breakfast, Pip. <laughs> um, so kind of an in-house joke. But yeah, I mean, Barry, he's this eminent, but he talks just like this. And you ask him a question. He turns it back to you, which is always very intimidating. But I just I just hold him in the highest regard, both for his scholarship um, and, and, and how he conducts himself in the field. Um, I'm, I'm so fortunate that I was able to work with him. So with these Hobbit references on the wall, so the Gandalf, the Gandalf thing is not, that has been, that has been noted before. Uh, yeah, we, we all quietly kind of noted and um, it's kind of awesome. Good, good. So now um, moving forward from that, you ended up getting your PhD at Cambridge and you started this full Egypt survey. So at this point, this was all satellite image based, right? The full Egypt survey that you did. So you're all in on satellite or space. I'm going to say space archaeology because that sounds like at least there's some prospect of digging stuff up on Mars while you're at it. Um, so you're all in on the space archaeology thing at this point. This is post-PhD, right. the all Egypt survey? So so the, my PhD focused on developing tools and techniques for mapping sites across large sca- landscapes in, in Egypt. I didn't start on the comprehensive survey of Egypt until about four or five years later. Um, and that was the result of a TV program with the BBC. So you know, after I'd been at my university for a couple of years, I'd been a talking head once on a TV show and a producer at the BBC. And this for, is now here, here in Alabama. Here in Alabama, yes. Yep. So that she reached out to me, kind of said, will you be a talking head on a BBC show? And of course I, of course I will, that's awesome. But we eventually ended up developing um, a whole program on the use of space archaeology in Egypt. So that's really why I ended up doing this large-scale survey. So it was a direct result of the BBC program. Yes, it was. That's interesting. Did the BBC help fund it? Yeah, yeah. They, so they, they, the um, you know they were, they were able to pay for uh, for students, for researchers, for my time. So wow. yeah, they, they helped they helped to fund it. I had not realized that. So the the program is online and it's it's very accessible to YouTube. So I would recommend it to anybody because it is a fascinating. It's over an hour long. Like it's in, it's pretty in-depth. Yeah, it's a ninety minute program. What remind me of the full title so people so can it's, Google it's it? It's Egypt's Lost Cities. Got it. And that's so cool that they actually helped fund it. Now, so the scope of that discovery, how many months did that unfold over? Like how many months were you working on? I can't remember exactly how long, uh, but you know, I had a team of four students and a full-time researcher and myself. So it probably took us six or seven months. Got it. And um, you found literally thousands of sites or candidate sites, right? Over 3,100 potential sites. Ours technical listeners, that's a lot of sites, huh? We'll dig deeper into Sarah's amazing work tomorrow, if you'll forgive the pun, and I do hope you'll join me. But if you just can't wait to hear the rest of this conversation, or if you'd like to browse my three dozen plus other episodes, you can just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after on into your favorite podcast player. Either way, you should then see my full archive of episodes in reverse chronological order, with Sarah's interview appearing on October 17th, of last year. 
You'll also find unhurried conversations with world-class thinkers, founders, and scientists on subjects including genomics, synthetic biology, robotics, astrophysics, privacy and government hacking, cryptocurrency drones, and a whole lot more. Or you could just join me here on Ours Tomorrow for more with Sarah Parkak. Thank you.